Hello and welcome back to my podcast Ontario's Call to the Bar. I'm Aditi. Today we'll be discussing simplified procedure. We have briefly talked about this in our last episode, but today we'll be discussing this in a little more detail. So let's review what we already know. I'm going to go step by step. We have five things that we already know. The first one is the purpose of simplified procedure is to reduce the cost of litigation without compromising on the due process of law. Second, it is mandatory for all cases where the money or property in question is worth $200,000 or less, exclusive of interest and cost. Well, in cases where it's more than $200,000, Plaintiff may still proceed, provided the defendant does not object. That's the third one. Fourth one, again, where the claim is more than $200,000, plaintiff may still proceed if he or she is willing to abandon the remaining amount. So, for example, if the claim is for $250,000, the plaintiff is willing to let go of 50000 he or she, the plaintiff, can go under simplified procedure again. That's the fourth one. Fifth one, and this is an exception, simplified procedure does not apply to class proceedings, construction act, except trust claims, and uh, case management issues, actions subsequently assigned for case management issues, where jury notice was delivered involving um, case of slander, libel, malicious arrest, malicious prosecution, false imprisonment, and family law proceedings. So that's a lot of information that we know, but it's not enough. There's a lot more to it. So let's dig deeper. Mm. So we know that cases go for months Civil cases go on for months and even years sometimes. But simplified procedure trials are limited to five days. Especially, I think there were some amendments before 1st of January 2020. Before, I I don't know about that, but for now, it is limited to five days. Nobody can challenge that. Even the judge cannot extend it. So... We have seen that for cases involving a claim for more than 200000 the defendant can object. We know that, right? We just, we just reviewed that part. I want to make a bit more clarification on that, about the defendant being able to object. So, if the claim involves a property and the fair market value of it exceeds 200000 at the time of the action, uh, when the action was commenced, defendant can object. So, that's the basis on which he, can, he or she can object. The plaintiff has the burden of proof in finding out the value of the fair market value of the property. So the pre- plaintiff, 
the complain complaining party will find out the value the defendant will say no i think it's worth more than 200000 and will object that being said in case defendant objects and it turns out that the value of property is indeed equal to or less than $200,000 that means defendant was displaying the court the defendant will be required to pay on a substantial indemnity basis the cost incurred by the plaintiff that that he or she would not have incurred had the claim originally been continued under civil procedure so if you're if you if you if you're trying to manipulate the judicial system there are pecuniary damages so be careful defendant now moving on where a defendant wants to start a counterclaim cross claim or third party claim i've not discussed this before so i'm just going to quickly touch on that counterclaim is when you sue back the plaintiff that it's not me it's you cross claim if there are two defendants one defendant say it's not my fault it's actually the second defendant's fault that's cross claim third party claim is no matter how many defendants there are they are like oh it's it wasn't us it was a third party who made the mistake so please exclude us sort of a thing so anyway where the defendant wants to start a counter claim cro- cross claim or third party claim under civil proceedings she or he can attempt to remove that action from sim- simplified procedure by making a subsidiary claim for more than 200,000 limit or by seeking for relief other than what is permitted under rule 76 so it basically says that if you're doing a counter claim cross claim or third claim you and you want to move away from simplified procedure to ordinary trial which is very lengthy you just have to increase the monetary limit in your claims and voila you can go to ordinary proceedings um but the main action nonetheless which the plaintiff started will continue to be a simplified procedure okay but if the defendant wants that even the original proceeding which the plaintiff started it goes to ordinary ordinary trial process instead of simplified procedure she or he can object and the court will decide eventually so now we've looked at the part when which says that the defendant can object we've looked into it let's move on to the next subtopic which is can you move from ordinary proceeding to simplified procedure of course you can we just looked at that you can how three simple requirements first consent of all parties so so there's a regular trial going on and one of the parties says that you know what this is not that big of a deal the monetary limit is small and i am willing to go under simplified procedure 
okay, you just ask the other party if they are okay with it. Then you file the consent and you can go ahead. Or you can forego, abandon some of the money you're claiming and bring it down to 200,000 limit and you can go to simplified procedure again. And also ensure that all the subsidiary claims, which is what counterclaim, cross-claim and third-party claim, they also comply with the same rules. And once you've done all that, then the plaintiff must deliver a notice stating that the action or any related proceedings are now going to commence or proceed under simplified procedure. There is, however, a pecuniary limitation to this amendment. So because you wasted the court's time, you could have started it under ordinary uh, under simplified procedure, but instead you try to manipulate the judicial system by going to ordinary proceedings so that you get a longer process and you can exploit the system more. So the pecuniary damage is that the party which initiates the amendments shall pay on a substantial indemnity basis the cost incurred by the opposing party up to the date of amendment that would not have been incurred if the action had originally been commenced under simplified procedure unless the court or the court orders otherwise obviously so it's clear the rationale behind it is to deter the party from choosing ordinary proceeding over simplified proceeding procedure to take advantage of the longer examination for discovery okay so yes you can move from ordinary proceeding to simplified proceeding but there is a pecuniary damage that will apply to you now can let's reverse the situation can you move from simplified proceeding to ordinary proceeding yes you can there are again the same sort of requirements you just have to amend the claim to exceed more than two hundred thousand dollars threshold and voila you can go to simplified you can go to ordinary proceedings from simplified proceedings and then again because you're doing all this these changes you have to deliver a notice to everybody all the parties involved and the court stating that the action and any any related proceedings are going to be continued under ordinary procedure so this is again clear it wasn't too hard So let's consider a scenario where there are multiple plaintiffs or defendants. So what if there is more than one plaintiff? Simplified procedure must be used if each plaintiff's claim is valued at 200,000 or less. Simple. Now what if there is more than one defendant? The rule says simplified procedure must be used if the claim against each defendant is valued at less than $200,000. That's it. So now we are moving on 
two salient features. We have discussed a lot about what simplified procedure is. Now, let's see what makes it so simplified. What is the simplified about simplified procedure, right? Let's look at that. There are about eight points that I have. Let's look at the first one. The first one is, which we already already know, it says it needs to be concluded within five days. That's it. Second, oral examinations for each party cannot exceed more than three hours. And in Toronto, Ottawa and Windsor, it is further limited to 30 minutes. Isn't that great? It is completely in compliance with the general principles of the rules of civil procedure. Remember, just most expeditious and um, least expensive. It is totally in compliance with that. That is the second salient feature. Third is the absence of written examination for discovery and cross-examination. So as opposed to ordinary proceedings, simplified proceedings, in simplified proceedings, the examination for discovery and cross-examination happens orally. And we just saw in the previous point that there's a time limit of 30, uh, of uh, three hours. And in Toronto, Ottawa and Windsor, it's 30 minutes. These are the three points. The fourth one. The fourth one says that all motions under simplified procedure shall be heard in the county where the proceeding was commenced. So let's assume a, a simplified proceeding was commenced in county of Essex. It will continue in the same county provided, obviously, unless the court orders otherwise or the parties disagree, yes, you know. It has to be in compliance with all of that. Moving on to the fifth one. Certain motions to be dealt by the registrar. So registrar usually does not hear motions, but in simplified procedure, with the consent of all parties, it can be done. But there is a small limit to it when you are when when you're approaching a registrar under simplified procedure a notice must be given to all parties and including the court and that notice must state that none of the parties involved is under disability because remember a party under disability is very well protected by the judicial system because of the position they are in so when disabled parties are involved the court takes it very seriously i hope you remember what are disabled parties one is a minor second is somebody who is mentally incompetent that is they're unable to make financial and health decisions for themselves and third is an absentee somebody who's been missing for over seven years period. Now we've looked at the five salient features. There are three more to go. Let's look at the sixth one. It says, it talks about settlement. So when a claim has started, a party serves 
a notice of claim to one party and the defendant responds with a notice of defense or notice of intent to defend. Now in that case, from that day onwards, the day which, uh, which the notice of defense or the notice of intent to defend is served, 60 days, within 60 days of that period, both the parties need to do two things. One is make sure that all documents related to the matter at issue have been disclosed. There are no gaps. There are no blind spots. That is the first thing. Second thing, try to settle the matter outside the court within 60 days. That's all. That's the sixth salient feature. Now moving on to the seventh one. Seventh point, salient feature, it says that, it talks about what if within that 60-day period where the parties need to find blind spots and try to settle, it is unsuccessful. What happens? The next step, which is point seven, says that the party wishing to proceed with the trial must serve each party and the court a notice of readiness for pre-trial conference. It's a new term. I'll repeat it. A notice of readiness for pre-trial conference. Now, what does it include? It just simply says that we tried to settle the matter, but we had an unsettled, unsuccessful settlement discussion. That's all. And this needs to be served within 180 days after the first defense or notice of intended defense was served. So roughly six months, but it's not six months. You know the computation period is strictly 180 days. So 180 days. Now, that is the seventh salient feature. It's pretty straightforward. The last one, eighth salient feature. Now, the notice of readiness for pre-trial conference is given. Within 180 days, the filing of, uh, of the filing of first defense or notice of intent to defend the parties will finally schedule a pre-trial conference. Obviously, you've given a notice of readiness for pre-trial conference. The next step is obviously a pre-trial conference. What happens here? Both the parties make their submissions to a pre-trial judge or a case management master. What are these submissions? Basically, a list of witnesses, their, their trial management plan, which, which is basically if, since they're going to trial, how are they going to divide these five precious days that they have? How do they want to proceed? What are the evidences they want to submit? Who's going to cross-examine it? Are they going to re-examine it? The arguments? And that's, that's all they're going to discuss in the pre-trial conference. The pre-trial judge and or, or the case management master, whoever it is, that person will examine it and finalize the next step. And finally, we are at trial. Simple. Ten days before the trial, 
the moving party needs to file a trial record with the proof of service. What is a trial record? It includes a copy of all pleadings and all the orders related to that trial. Simple. We are finally at trial. So trial has basically nine steps and I'm going to read them. The first one, each party shall give their opening statements. Second, the plaintiff shall present its expert evidence by affidavit. Naturally, the third step is defendant will cross-examine it. The next step, plaintiff will re-examine its own expert evidence. The same step will be repeated for the defendant. Now the defendant will submit its expert evidence. Further, the plaintiff will cross-examine it. Again, the defendant will re-examine its own evidence that was cross-examined by the plaintiff. Last two steps. With the leave of the court, the plaintiff may adduce any proper reply evidence. The plaintiff gets one more chance to cite any additional evidence. And the last step. Each party will make an oral argument. It's sort of like a closing argument. And voila! The trial is over. Now it's time for judgment. Let's look at that. So where the action, so where is judgment available? We have to look at some really crucial points here. A lot of times plaintiffs, they try, they first go to ordinary proceeding and then they come back to simplified procedure. In such a scenario, there is a, Despite winning the case, there are consequences. And the consequence is that the plaintiff will not get any award. And not only that, in addition to that, they also have to pay for all or part of defendant's cost, including a cost on substantial, a substantial indemnity basis. So this is one very important thing that judgment considers. And the same thing applies for defendant, which we have already observed before. And that is the judgment. Now, all of you must be wondering, what is the quantum of costs? Obviously, we, are, we have fought so long. What is the quantum of costs? Five days of glorious trial. Well, the maximum limit of costs that can be awarded is $50,000. Five days, $50,000. Try to remember it that way. And for the limit for disbursements that are available, it's half of that, $25,000. And that's it. That is the end of simplified procedure. Now you know everything about simplified procedure. <laughs> of course, you can never know everything about law. Thank you for listening. I hope the simplified procedure was simple enough to understand. See you next time.